0: In his teens and early 20s, he had played vigorously with family and friends. He also worked it into a few early paintings. But in his late 20s, something happened between Duchamp and chess that transformed the relationship into an addiction and eventually an obsession. Slowly, over a few years' time, chess moved to the very front of his brain somehow forcing fundamentals like art, ideas, friendships, and romance to the rear. It was as if these thirty-two inanimate pieces of wood emitted some sort of unseen magnetic or hypnotic power, bending Duchamp's formidable mind to its own will. Strangest of all, perhaps, was the fact that this transition happened in the midst of career glory. Imagine John F. Kennedy chucking politics in June 1960 in favor of billiards. Popular and intriguing, Duchamp was the toast of art patrons in Paris, New York, and beyond. Now, at his peak, he was turning away from all this. Days that would ordinarily have been filled, receiving admiring gallery owners and customers, and late nights that would have included dinner parties and more studio work, instead became packed with one chess game after another, after another, after another. Between games, Duchamp engaged in the silent, monastic study of chess problems— thousands of tricky end-game scenarios labored over by most serious players in new york duchamp joined the marshall chess club near washington square park playing until all hours of the night During a two-year stint in Buenos Aires, he constantly sought opponents, studied chess books, and commissioned a set of custom rubber stamps in order to play through the mail with his New York patron and friend, Walter Ahrensberg. By his early thirties, the transition was complete. Apart from the design of some chess sets, Duchamp was producing virtually no art. He shocked friends by bluntly declaring that he was giving up his old career to become a full-time chess player. I play day and night, he declared in 1919, at age 32, and nothing interests me more than to find the right move. For hours at a stretch, taking just enough time for meals in between, Duchamp played alone in his apartment, with friends and strangers at cafes, and even in the midst of loud art world parties. This new life involved not just a reordering of his work and social priorities, he explained to friends, but also his very consciousness. Everything around me takes the shape of the knight or the queen, he said, and the exterior world has no other interest for me other than its transformation to winning or losing positions." In 1923, he moved to Brussels to further his studies of the game, and then returned to Paris. There, he would work on chess problems all evening long, take a short break at midnight for scrambled eggs at the Café Dôme, and then return to his room to work on chess again until about 4 a.m. Even true love could not moderate his fixation. In 1927, Duchamp married Lydia Sarazin Lavasseur, a young heiress. On their honeymoon, he spent the entire week studying chess problems. Infuriated, his bride plotted her revenge. When Duchamp finally drifted off to sleep late one night, Lydia glued all of the pieces to the board. They were divorced three months later. Introduction Large rocks, severed heads, and flaming pots of oil rained down on Baghdad, capital of the vast Islamic Empire, as its weary defenders scrambled to reinforce gates, ditches, and the massive stone walls surrounding the fortress city's many brick and teak palaces. Giant wooden manjanik catapults bombarded distant structures— while the smaller, more precise Aradah catapult guns pelted individuals with grapefruit-sized rocks. Arrows flew thickly, and elite horsemen assaulted footmen with swords and spears. The horses trample the livers of courageous young men, lamented the poet Al-Khuryami, and their hooves split their skulls. Outside the circular city's main wall, 100 feet high, 145 feet thick, and six miles in circumference, soldiers pressed forward with battering rams, while other squads choked off supply lines of food and reinforcements. Amid sinking boats and burning rafts, bodies drifted down the Tigris River. The impenetrable City of Peace was crumbling. In the fifty years since its creation, In A.D. 762, young Baghdad had rivaled Constantinople and Rome in its prestige and influence. It was a wildly fertile axis of art, science, and religion, and a bustling commercial hub for trade routes reaching deep into Central Asia, Africa, and Europe. But by the late summer of A.D. 813, after nearly two years of civil war, between brothers no less the enlightened islamic capital was a smoldering starving bloody heap in the face of disorder any human being desperately needs order some way to manage if not the material world at least one's understanding of the world in that light Perhaps it's no real surprise that, as the stones and arrows and horses' hooves thundered down on Baghdad, the protected core of the city hosted a different sort of battle. Within the round city's imperial inner sanctum, secure behind three thick circular walls and many layers of gate and guard, under the luminescent green dome of the Golden Gate Palace, Muhammad al-Amin the sixth caliph of the Abbasid Empire, spiritual descendant of, and distant blood relation to, the Prophet Muhammad, sovereign of one of the largest dominions in the history of the world, was playing chess against his favorite eunuch, Kalthar. A trusted messenger burst into the royal apartment with urgently bad news. More inglorious defeats in and around the city were to be reported to the caliph. In fact, his own safety was now in jeopardy. But Al-Amin would not hear of it. He waved off his panicked emissary. "O oh, commander of the faithful,' implored the messenger, according to the medieval Islamic historian Jiri Salmakin. "'This is not the time to play. Pray arise and attend to matters of more serious moment.' It was no use. The caliph was absorbed in the board.' A chess game in progress is, as every chess spouse quickly learns, a cosmos unto itself, fully insulated from an infant's cry, an erotic invitation, or war. The board may have only 32 pieces and 64 squares, but within that confined space, the game has near infinite depth and possibility. An outsider, looking on casually, might find the intensity incomprehensible. But anyone who has played the game a few times understands how it can be engrossing in the extreme. Quite often, in the middle of an interesting game, it's almost as if reality has been flipped inside out. The chess game in motion seems to be the only matter of substance. While any hint of the outside world feels like an annoying irrelevance. The messier the external world, the more powerful this inverted dynamic can be. Perhaps that is why Caliph Al Amin, who sensed that his hours were numbered, preferred to soak in the details of his chess battlefield rather than reports of the calamitous siege of his city. On the board, He could see the whole action. On the board, he could neatly make sense of significant past events and carefully plan his future. On the board, he still might win. "'Patience, my friend,' the caliph calmly replied to his messenger, standing only a few feet away and yet a world apart. "'I see that in a few moves I shall give Kalthar checkmate.' Not long after this, Alamein and his men.